Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 87. The Empire Strikes Back. The Emperor Gallienus, despite the extreme difficulties of his reign, was a cultured and intelligent man, a pretty good commander and a very good administrator. He spent the time that he had when he wasn't defending the borders, patronising the arts and sciences and reorganising the army. He created a new unit made up of crack cavalry troops and based it in Milan, so he could quickly get to most of the empire whenever it was needed. This meant Gallienus was able to react much more quickly when trouble started. He appointed his favourite general, Aureolus, to commander of the cavalry unit. Aureolus would eventually revolt and be killed, but two men, one who started and one who finally completed the restoration of the empire, would both be commanders of this mobile cavalry unit. Gallienus also finally put an end to senators' leading armies. He wanted real soldiers in charge of his forces, not untrained amateurs such as these. He appointed equestrians as governors to some of the provinces, jobs which had been traditional part of the cursus honorum, and, according to the senatorial class, for men of senatorial rank. For these changes, among other things, the Senate hated Gallienus just as much as they had despised any emperor before him. And not only that, of course, currently he only controlled the middle part of his empire. Gallienus was prepared to put up with Odonathus in the east, because he was still at least pretending that Gallienus was the actual emperor. Posthumous, though, he couldn't tolerate. The Gallic Empire had been created entirely against his wishes, and neither Posthumus nor Gallienus could pretend there was any official blessing of its existence. The emperor sent Aureolus through the Alps and into the Gallic Empire to attack the forces of the northern usurper. The result was a bit strange. Aureolus defeated Posthumus in battle and took a little territory north of the Alps, but he didn't move forward to crush the rest of the Gallic Empire. It's thought that he made a deal with Posthumus. He wouldn't take the Gallic Empire if Posthumus would help him when he made his move against Gallienus. Gallienus, Posthumus and Odonathus spent most of the 260s dealing with invasions on each of their frontiers. Gallienus never again had the chance to challenge either of the breakaway empires. The years from 262 to 265 were relatively peaceful, and it's during this time that the emperor allowed himself some time to work on things other than defence. He visited Athens, still the centre of philosophy and culture, where he was initiated into the Eleusian Mysteries, the cult of Demeter and Persephone. He promoted the study of philosophy and was a patron of Plotinus, traditionally the founder of Neoplatonism. Historians hostile to Gallienus have used these activities to justify their claims he was negligent in his attention on the real issues of the day. As we have seen, this was very unfair. Towards the end of the decade, though, the chaos deepened even further, and the crisis of the 3rd century gathered pace once more. Until 268, things carried on much as they had throughout the early part of the 260s. There were numerous invasions, and the three empires successfully fought off the barbarians. There were also loads and loads of attempts to overthrow Gallienus, but he managed to keep the usurpers as well as the barbarians at bay. He even had time to dedicate an arch to his successes, not that his military successes were actually that great. By 268, things had settled down a bit once more, and Gallienus began to dream of reuniting the empire. He kept the soldiers under his command loyal by making absolutely sure they got paid on time. He created four new coinage mints and produced more coins. 
Gallienus and the ancient Romans had no knowledge of economics and they didn't realise what would happen. There was more money around, so people wanted more money for their goods. This meant that prices went up rapidly and so even more money had to be made. This, of course, is called inflation and is something which modern states try to avoid, not always successfully. Inflation would cause some serious problems for the empire a little further down the line. Gallienus, though, as we know, would never get the chance to reunite his empire. The years 268 and 269 would change the look of it, or is that them, dramatically. Although the government of the empire, or empires, was still chaotic, for the people things were looking a little better as the decade drew to a close. The borders were a little safer, life was a little bit easier, and things were a little bit less scary. Because of these facts, there were no serious rebellions against Posthumus or Odenathus. As is frequently the case in times of crisis, though, even being a successful leader was not enough to keep them alive. Both of them were killed after small incidents which shouldn't have resulted in the death of a good commander. In the east, Odenathus had defeated the Sassanids often enough to keep them out of Roman territory. Odenathus was a great leader, and without him things may have been very different. Again and again he beat Sharpor's soldiers. Between 262 and 267 he launched a series of attacks, recapturing much of Mesopotamia and probably managing to occupy that war-torn buffer zone, Armenia. He even succeeded in battling to the gates of the Sassanid capital, Tisiphon, although he never actually managed to take the city. Gallienus, trying to preserve the perception of legitimacy, gave him the title Dux, a kind of equivalent to the medieval duke and named him Commander of the Entire East. Locally, he was named King of Kings, a title more associated with Persian monarchs. It is unclear as to whether he personally wanted the title, but it was clear that the Palmyrans saw him as something other than simply Gallienus's man in the East. While he was there, this was fine. Once he had gone, things got out of hand. Eventually, the Sassanids had had enough. By 267, Odenathus was even able to turn west and head out to battle against the Goths, who were looking menacing once again. As the Goths attacked by the sea and by land, Odenathus collected up his army and headed to the northwest to face them. As Odenathus was travelling, he took some time out to go hunting, a pursuit he enjoyed greatly. While hunting, Odenathus's nephew, Myonius, took a shot at an animal that should have been left to Odenathus. The leader was furious and gave the young man a terrible telling off in front of the rest of his men and imposed a fine upon him. The nephew seethed with hatred and vowed to have his revenge. Very soon after, at a family party, he slipped some poison into Odenathus's food. After eight years of leading the struggles in the east, the great lord of Palmyra was dead. His eldest son, Herodus, was also assassinated. It's this second killing that casts a little doubt on the story of the assassination. Herodus was Odenathus's son by a previous marriage. He also had a son, Vabalathus, by his current marriage, and it's here we need to introduce a woman who very nearly managed to permanently split the Roman Empire. Zenobia, like her husband, was from the Palmyran aristocracy, but was also a Roman citizen. She was fluent in Egyptian, Greek and Aramaic, but had only a limited knowledge of Latin. She claimed to be descended from the Diadochi, the successors of Alexander the Great. She could trace her ancestry, she said, back to the Ptolemaic rulers of Egypt and the Seleucids, former rulers of Asia Minor, Syria and the East. 
Many of the sources tell us how beautiful she was, and she liked to be compared with Cleopatra. All this demonstrates she had a very lofty opinion of herself and was highly ambitious. Like most women, she couldn't dream of ruling in her own right. She could, though, dream of ruling through her young son. So it's possible that she had something to do with the assassinations, although there is no direct evidence. The nephew was, of course, executed for his crime. But for now, the eastern part of the empire was without a leader. The Gothic invasion had also caught the attention of Gallienus. The Goths had seen how well their ships had done in helping them attack cities and steal treasure. They thought, since it had worked well with a few ships, they may as well try it with loads and loads of ships. In 267, a massive Gothic fleet sailed into the Black Sea and threw into the Sea of Marmara. They were now sacking cities a long way from home territory. Gallienus launched the Roman fleet and smashed the Goths in a naval battle. Some of the Goths escaped and attacked Greece. Gallienus charged down to meet them in his usual way, leaving his favourite general, Aureolus, in Milan. He put his new mobile cavalry under the command of another of his top generals, Marcus Aurelius Valerius Claudius. Again, Gallienus and his armies were successful, and they began their march back to Milan. Aureolus was not happy about having been left behind, and because of this, or because he was going to do it anyway, he revolted. Gallienus legged it back to Milan. Aureolus begged Postumus for help, but Postumus wasn't interested. Gallienus laid siege to Milan and waited for it to fall, but his officers had other ideas. Gallienus was hated by the Senate, and the officers from Illyricum were, it seems, not satisfied with his leadership. They began to whisper amongst themselves, and a treacherous plan was formed. One of the conspirators burst into Gallienus's tent and shouted, Aureolus and his men are leaving Milan and coming to attack. Gallienus burst out of his tent, forgot to put on his armour, and got on his horse. As he rode out to see what was going on, he was struck down by an assassin, and thus perished one of the most criticised but heroic emperors of Rome. Poor Gallienus had done the best he could as emperor, for a very impressive, given the circumstances, 15 years. He was still only 50 years old when he died. The Senate was delighted to find their nemesis gone, and executed his brother and his one remaining son, just to make sure the job was complete. So, now the middle part of the empire was without a leader. But not for long. Posthumus watched the goings-on in the Middle and Eastern empires, chuckled to himself and patted himself on the back for not getting involved. He smiled and got on with governing his Gallic empire. But also, not for long. In late 268, one of his officers had declared himself emperor. There had been very few revolts against Posthumus, and this one was put down quickly. The soldiers who put down the rebellion wanted to sack the city of Mainz, which had supported the usurper. Mainz was an ancient Roman city, founded by Tiberius's brother Drusus in 9 BC. Posthumus told his soldiers that he was master of the whole Gallic Empire, and it was therefore unacceptable to plunder one of their own cities. So they killed him. Yep, just like that, they killed him. So now the western part of the empire was without a leader. Chaos again, three leaders dead, but the voids were not left open for long. In the west, Posthumus was succeeded by a general called Marius, who didn't last long, and then by Victorianus. In the east, Odenathus was succeeded by his son Verbalathus, but the power really rested with Zenobia. 
It must be remembered that Gallienus had legitimised the rule of Odonathus, but had in no way intended his titles to be hereditary. There was nothing in place that allowed Vabalathus to assume his father's powers. More than this, Zenobia wasn't interested in ruling her part of the empire and pretending the emperor of Rome was really in charge. She and her general Zabdas began to break with Rome and form the Palmyran Empire. In the Middle Empire, the officers who had killed Gallienus rallied around the senior Illyrian, the cavalry commander Marcus Claudius, and he was declared emperor. The Senate quickly agreed, and the new emperor began his reign by ordering the people of Milan to throw out Aureolus and the other rebels, or they would all be killed. Aureolus's head was seen on a spike outside the city as a warning to others. Marcus Valerius Claudius had most certainly not been destined for such a high office. He'd been born in Illyricum on the 10th of May 213 and was from a very unimportant family. Like many of his countrymen, he joined the army at a young age. He was a soldier all his life, until he became emperor, of course. Having executed Aureolus's supporters, the second thing Claudius did after his accession was ask the Senate to declare Gallienus a god. The senators were appalled. They couldn't stand the man, so they were not going to suddenly start worshipping him. Claudius, though, demonstrated very clearly how unimportant the Senate now was and made them do it anyway. The third thing Claudius did was replace himself as cavalry commander. He chose a man who will go down in history as one of the greatest soldier emperors the world has ever known. Lucius Domitius Aurelianus had been born in Pannonia, probably in 215, so was just a couple of years younger than Claudius. Again, he was of very lowly birth. His father was a farmer. Aurelian, as we will come to know and love him, also joined the army as a very young man and proved his bravery and skill over and over again. By the time Gallienus was killed, he was one of the top generals in the empire. Aurelian was close to Claudius and the other Illyrian commanders and it is likely that both he and Claudius knew about the plot to kill Gallienus. Aurelian was known to be tough, strict, not much fun, hard as nails and only interested in military success. He was given the nickname Sword in Hand because he was so tough, strict, not much fun, hard as nails and only interested in military success. These traits have caused some generals to be hated by their soldiers but the troops loved Aurelian despite them. This was because, as well as being tough, strict, not much fun, hard as nails and only interested in military success, he was a supreme soldier, such a clever and masterful commander that he was seemingly unbeatable on the battlefield. Claudius took a look at his empire and decided he was going to reunite it with the Gallic and Palmyran parts. He was particularly upset that a woman, Zenobia, was in control in the east. No, this could not be allowed to go on. Claudius was going to do something about this woman before she became as big a pain as the woman she liked to compare herself with, Cleopatra, had been 300 years before. All this would have to wait though, because Gallienus had left the Goths in Greece while he went back to Milan to deal with Aureolus, and the Goths were still in the empire, harassing Roman cities. Claudius marched his army towards the Balkans to face the invaders. He met a massive Gothic horde near the city of Nisus. It said the Gothic army contained at least 50,000 men. This looked very bad. Was there going to be another Abritus? Were the Romans going to lose another emperor in battle? The battle was hard, bloody and horrible. It swung one way and then the other until a Roman commander, yep, that man Aurelian, pulled the old pretend retreat trick. 
he led the cavalry away in what looked like a frightened retreat, but as the Goths followed, he turned them around and charged back in. The Gothic army was slaughtered. Some Goths escaped and found themselves besieged on the side of a mountain. They tried to run, but they were all captured. Claudius knew the plague was still taking its toll on his army, so he invited the remaining Goths to settle in Roman territory, so long as a large number of them would join his forces. This tactic would be used again and again in the future. In recognition of his great victory at Nisus, Claudius was given the name by which he is known today, Claudius Gothicus. As usual, the emperor's absence caused another barbarian tribe to invade elsewhere, and Claudius was forced to turn back and go to Italy to defeat the Alamanni. This man, Claudius Gothicus, was proving to be a pretty marvellous emperor. Everyone was delighted, and the emperor was more popular than any since Septimius Severus. There were no rebellions, and the other parts of the empire began to take some notice. In the west, Posthumus's death caused the Spanish provinces to have a look at what was going on. They decided it was only a matter of time before Claudius Gothicus would attack and reclaim the Gallic Empire. They declared their support for him, and the whole of the Iberian Peninsula was back under Roman control, without a fight. Claudius gave one of his generals some troops, and told them to march into Gallic territory and take as much as they could. They managed to take back most of the southeastern part of Gaul. In the east, tensions rose. Zenobia was showing her real intentions by sending her troops into Egypt. Claudius watched on and was very pleased with himself. He looked forward to taking back the rest of the empire and taking it back very soon. Claudius, though, would not regain any more of the empire. He and his army were detained battling against a new Danubian barbarian tribe. We met them briefly in our summary of the Germanic barbarians. They were the Vandals. They didn't cause Claudius too much trouble, but they will make up for that in spades later in our story. As he led his campaign, though, Claudius Gothicus contracted the Cyprian plague and soon died. He'd ruled the empire very successfully for just 17 months. He managed to cram an awful lot into such a short time. Claudius Gothicus has become a somewhat legendary emperor. The Historia Augusta spends pages and pages praising him, claiming that he was more popular than Trajan, and saying things like, he was tall of stature with flashing eyes and a broad full face, and so strong were his fingers that he often, by a blow of his fist, would dash out the teeth of a horse. Perhaps punching a horse's teeth out was something to be proud of in the ancient world. Most of the legends sprang up around the time the Emperor Constantine was trying to claim that he was descended from Claudius, so to cement his own grip on the throne. Claudius Gothicus had been too young and too busy to think about who, su who should succeed him. The army, though, knew who they wanted. And the Senate knew who they wanted. Sadly, their choices were not the same, and there could only be one winner. Aurelian's time had come. And what a time it was. In the next chapter, we'll find out why. Two ebooks which contain the first 50 chapters of our story are available on Amazon. They're entitled The Myths of Ancient Greece and The History of Ancient Greece. Please do go and check them out. If you'd like to contact me to leave any feedback or just to ask questions, then please do so by email mythandhistory at gmail.com or friend me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. So, have a great couple of weeks 
and I'll speak to you next time.